Hello and welcome to the Inside Elland Road podcast from the Yorkshire Evening Post. This is episode 99. I'm Graham Smith, Chief Football Writer for the YUP, and I'm joined by Joe Urquhart, one of our Leeds United writers, to talk about all things white and all things ESL after a busy couple of days. Joe, how are you? I'm good. When did we last speak? Uh, well, just a few minutes ago before we started recording, but... but since we last recorded a podcast, Leeds have beaten Man City with 10 men. You've turned 18 and my children have grown up and they're now all working as PR officers for the European Super League. So, I mean, a lot a lot of water has passed under the bridge. I was going to say, like, I was trying to think about what other, like, huge events would bring us back together to record a podcast. And I'm not sure there's many other than sort of the European Super League. Is there any you can think of? Well, I'm only here because there was a saxophonist at Gravelly's last night and I want to talk about it at length. Is it not Gravelly's? I don't, in Northern Ireland, you would say Gravelly's. I'm pretty sure in Leeds you say Gravelly's. Well, well, I'll stick with the Northern Irish <laughs> and, pronunciation. And here ends the episode 99 <laughs> of our podcast. This is why we don't podcast. Um, so we will, of course, come on to talk about the uh, the great the great big fat greedy ugly elephant in the room, um, but I want to talk about Manchester City first because I, I feel like I feel like we should start there. Um, we could start anywhere really from January onwards, but we'll start there um, because it was absolutely magnificent. Um, it was a bit of a weird day because of like all the snow and and that and going across the Pennines to get to the ground and. Um, just I still find it a bit odd going to these like mega stadiums, you know, these super shiny kind of glass domes almost. Um, and I'm watching Leeds United play after last season, and of course after my own background of watching Chesterfield and works up time, it's it's a bit odd to be in these kind of stadiums. Um, and in the press box, they have padded seats. You know the kind of padded seats you would get in a in a in a bench for substitutes. That's what they have in the press box at, at City. Um, so it it all felt very strange, very strange indeed. But um, what a day that was for Leeds United, and and what a game. I mean, to go down to ten men in the way they did, and not lose, was magnificent. But to actually win the game. For me, and the reason I want to talk about it is I think it's a bit of a season-defining result. Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, um, I think it's well. It's obviously the best result of the season, which is really weird to say, given that they didn't play anywhere near the best football because of circumstance. If that makes any sense whatsoever, you know, the way that they played was um, sort of. Not doesn't fly in the face of how how Bielsa likes to play, but the way that they were forced after Liam Cooper's red card to sort of sit deep. We've not seen that at all at Ellen Road since since Bielsa's arrival. But the way that they sort of deployed the two wingers in Rafinha and Costa, and and sort of invited the two centre halves of, of Manchester City on was really clever. I think most people could see that sort of slowly happening. But um, I, I just again another another situation where you. You're left delighted, but slightly 
tinged with sadness that that fans couldn't experience that because they've missed so much out on you know out on so much this last last twelve months and the promotion everything like that. But that was really sort of the feather in the cap of of this season. I think I think when people look back and and you know look at the the way that they played you know the, the game that they played at Liverpool on the opening day will be remembered but I think that one you know the fact that they beat Manchester City they've been so good this season so good what they won 26 out of 27 in our competitions heading into the game and to turn up like that and, and not only that but score in the 91st minute you know Stuart Dallas still has the lung capacity to run forward that deep on after you know, they've been chased down how many balls you know how many runs into this into the lead half it was just I think um, a lot of tables were smashed a lot of neighbours were disturbed a lot of children were awoken and pets were scared from looking at Twitter but those are the moments that, that football creates and and although at least they couldn't be you know sort of in the ground um, at least lead supporters have had that sort of little bit of joy amid the the rubbishness that has been the whole year I quite liked um, Luke Ayling revealed the little chat he had with Dallas when Dallas was had done quite a bit of press and was asked to do one more later at night. And Dallas almost didn't want to do it because he felt like it was becoming a, you know, like a giant killing story, like, you know, plucky leads, absolutely cock a hoop to turn over at Man City. But I like that. Added, I like that mentality because they're not just here to make up the numbers and they believe that they can win every game. And, and we'll talk about that mentality about believing you can win in a second. But you do have to recognise the scale of the achievement because most of those players were seen as championship players and they were championship players until very, very recently. And not only that, they went down to 10 men and they were absolutely, they looked to me, a lot of them to be out on their feet in the final stages because they'd had to cover so much ground trying to stop City and they've had to do so much defending and they haven't had possession to speak of. Um, and I just think the result, it says so much about the way Leeds have uh, attacked the Premier League this season that they had the the balls and the temerity to say, you know what, we're actually going to try and win this in this moment. And um, just another bloody nose for the big boys. Um, and... And it probably results like that and moments like that has steeled, steeled the reserve of very rich men to try and stop this kind of thing from happening to their football clubs in these, these embarrassing moments. Um, I was sat directly behind Kyle Walker because under COVID regulations, substitutes are kind of dotted around the stand behind the bench and he was right at the back of it alongside Eric Garcia. Um, Kevin De Bruyne was a little bit further forward, and Phil Foden forward, more forward still. Um, Mares, right. I mean, um, the bench was. Want to throw any more names out? Well, this is the you point. Were, you were close this, to. But this, this is the point. Their bench was sensational. Their bench was ridiculous, and that, that kind of adds to it as well. The fact that it was this squad that, that Leeds United turned over, um, and along with getting an insight into some of the terrible, awful banter. On, on the city bench, just really like Kyle Walker shouted to um, what's his name? That really good one, Kevin De Bruyne. He shouted, uh, <laughs> "Kevin, why are you so poor?" And 
and I don't know whether he meant fiscally, like uh, which is a bit ironic because Kevin had just signed his new contract, and I, I imagine it's it's quite a pay packet. Or whether he meant it, it, either way, De Bruyne just looked at him as if he hadn't really spoken, and then just turned around to watch the game again. Um, another example was when Ian Paveda ex City went to run and warm up because Rafinha took a bit of a a bang uh, to the ankle. He got stood on actually. He didn't get a bang. He got stood on by Sterling. Um, and Paveda went running down the touchline and, and Walker just shouted, Paveda! Uh, and, and Jan Paveda has need to no excuse or a second invitation to smile, so he was just grinning. I just thought, you could have, there could have been so much more to that. Like, that could have been a, a very funny moment. Just bring up something from the past or, um, but no, just really inane stuff. But the reason it was fascinating was in the 91st minute, the city bench had all been screaming at the referee for uh, for time wasting. Uh, Benjamin Mendy was actually screaming. I mean, screaming at, at the top of his lungs. And Walker was finding it all very funny. City very much had the appearance of a squad to me who felt the winner is inevitable here. We're going to get. We're going to win this game. So they're all on their feet. Stuart Dallas sees Alioski with the ball and he looks forward and he sees space in between and behind the centre-backs. And he actually has the thought in his head, you know what, we're going to win this. We're going to go and win this game now. And the City bench just fell silent. Dallas runs through. They go completely silent. And they've made so much noise for the kind of the previous 10 minutes. And Dallas puts it in. And I can't say I can't say who it was because I wasn't sure, but someone on the City bench began the sentence, how has Stuart Dallas? And then I couldn't hear the rest of the the sentence because they kind of muttered it but it just summed it all up to me you know how on earth has Stuart Dallas done that um, second goal of the game in front of his national team manager who's absolutely crying out for a goal scorer at the minute um, and probably wishes he could play Dallas up front in attacking midfield central midfield right back and left back um, it was just a fantastic moment you know the, the moment that the kind of the billionaires were silenced and, and Leeds United um with a player who I still think, whilst Leeds fans rave about him and people are in the Premier League are starting to take notes, I still think he's fairly underrated. Um, for him to do that was just superb. It was a, a fitting goal um, for this season, really. And uh, just a fantastic result. Just absolutely superb. And you can't really praise it enough. And, and whilst, yes, it, you don't want to turn it into plucky little Leeds, lucky to be here. Um, you think where this club was not 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 very long ago at all. You think about some of the dark days in League One and, and here they are going toe-to-toe with the very best and albeit in that game they had to park the bus, which is very, very different and unfamiliar for them. But with 10 men, they managed to beat Man City. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. If anyone had said to you at the start of the season before the game at Anfield that this would be the reality this season... Would you have believed it? Yeah. <laughs> Just, no. I mean, not... I think after the the Liverpool game, I think we all sort of thought, you know, they've got a good chance of, of taking this brand of football into the Premier League and, and, and taking it to, to, to any team in the division. They might you know, lose games like they did at Liverpool, but they'll probably score enough goals or show enough attacking intent. But I think, like you said, the result of the season 
and Man City, but the, the different way that they played, just the whole the whole game, the way it panned out, you know, Cooper getting, you know, Dallas opening scoring, and then two minutes later, you're almost brought back, crashing back down to earth with Cooper getting a yellow card and then a red card with VAR, and then you, you spend the whole of half time thinking, well, it's basically just going to wait until City score then, and then and then we'll see what happens. But yeah, just just an unbelievable result another notch on the belt of, of, of Marcelo Bielsa who I do have to say on the telly did look a little bit embarrassed when Dallas scored like everyone else was going nuts and he sort of just turned around and started walking back to the bench <laughs> but that, that's that's his unassuming way isn't it just uh, I liked what he's I liked what he said that you know he felt it was deserved because of the effort his players put in but equally it would have been perfectly fair had City won but I feel like his his smile almost like summed it up you know, post-match, he was sort of laughing because he couldn't believe it. It, almost, it I know Leeds fans were on remanding this, it, and and there will have been comparisons made already. But it did have sort of parallels with that with that Wigan defeat that was so damaging um, a couple of seasons ago. And it was just the work rate that they that they put in. Just a team that is sort of willing to to sort of throw everything on the line for each other. And I think that's the that's the highest praise you can give this group of players that have been sort of assembled you've written about it before about sort of the the club being back in touch with you know the fans and everything and, and it sort of it, it bears fruit on the pitch at times and 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 when you see them having success I don't think it can it can it can do anything else but make you smile like those moments four points from two games against Manchester City I mean that that in itself is is worth shouting about um, arguably could have been six as well, given you know the woodwork they hit at Elland Road against City at home. And, um, but four points from six against Manchester City with 10 men and then Liverpool straight after. Uh, when you looked at these three games, City, Liverpool, Manchester United, um, I think everyone wants to see a good points return, but you could see a situation in which Leeds didn't take any or took one point because of the quality of the opposition they're facing so they've put themselves in a magnificent position now in the Premier League um, safety has, has, has long been secured but now you're kind of looking at just how high can you finish um, so not losing to Liverpool last night I think was was important you know the game might not have mattered to Liverpool for reasons we'll come on to discuss but um, or, the, or their owners but it but it matters, all these games matter to Leeds because, as Bielsa said, um, kind of the bottom half of the table is not something to be valued. So he wants a top half finish. Um, and the more points they can get at this stage, the likelier that is. So um, just in a really good place at the minute. And I mean, before we talk about Liverpool and before we talk about the, the ESL, it feels to me like the, the hits just keep on coming for Leeds, like it's just a, a really good feel good period for the club. I mean, look, the 23s, I mean, you're best suited to talk about that. What does it mean that the 23s won promotion in the way they did? It's massive, and I think it's massive um, for the reason that it, it there's, there's lots of reasons, but for a competitive reason, it's fantastic. They'll be playing the best academies that England has to offer. You know, Manchester City, Chelsea, Man U, Arsenal, Tottenham, everyone in that top division. You, there isn't a higher division in the country for academy football. So from a first point of view, 
winning promotion on on a competitive level sort of playing field is fantastic because there's no better competition that Leeds will get at academy level. But then also when you start thinking about who that potentially may attract to the football club in terms of recruitment at, at development level that Victor Orta has obviously gone down the route of. We've seen the arrivals of of Joe Gelhart and, and Sam Greenwood last summer, Cody Drame, Senke of Somerville. It's only going to attract higher quality of player to the academy as well. So there's lots of things. I think Mark Jackson's done an incredible job um, given it's his first season. People always seem to sort of try and shield it a little bit by um, saying, you know, he, he gets the use of, of first-team players. On, and although that is correct, there are, there is 100% um, a management sort of aspect to managing the different players into the group to making sure that nothing is lost when you incorporate those in. Um, managing the expectations of, of Marcelo Bielsa, who wants his players to come in. So I think the achievement and the fact that they won it by such a margin speaks volumes for the positivity, um, the development of, of homegrown talent as well. And I only think it's, a, it's exciting times for the academy and it sets up some fantastic games next year um, at academy level. Like I say, we're going to have Manchester United, Man City, Arsenal, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be good fun. And it'll be interesting to see, to sort of move it on slightly about what they decide to do in terms of the loan players, whether this promotion will decide that they keep more of them in-house or whether they'll let them go out on loan. Obviously, we'll, we'll see that sort of policy either way turn out this summer. But it's exciting times, I think, for everyone at Thorpe Arch. Um, a very nice moment to see the first team and staff given a guard of honour at Thorpe Arch for the for the 23s, just in terms of culture um, and in terms of kind of fostering that togetherness and making these youngsters feel like they're part of it. You know, they're, they're part of something bigger than just youth team football. Um, I thought that was really nice and very important. Um, so talking about feel-good factor, um, last night at Elland Road, uh, Leeds United fans were joined by Liverpool fans because they felt they had cause to gather uh, together to protest the plans for a European Super League, uh, plans that have been panned by UEFA, uh, by FIFA more or less, um, by the Premier League, who just released a statement saying that 14 clubs, the, the 14 outsiders, including Leeds, have met alongside the FA to unanimously and vigorously reject plans for the ESL. Plans that include founder members, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham and Liverpool, last night's opponents, um, to break away and have their own European super competition with midweek games. Uh, is it 13 founder members or 12 founder members and, and three clubs that will be, uh, three clubs that will be invited, 12 founder members, including, you know, some of the, some of Europe's biggest clubs um, but not all of them and these plans were kind of dropped out in a quite haphazard clumsy way uh, over the weekend and at first Joe it looked to me like you know when they kind of leak these things to the press to kind of test not only test the water but say to UEFA and FIFA um, like it shoots, shoots a, a warning shot across their bars doesn't it says you know we want we want more money we want more control we want a different broadcasting agreement, you know, and, and if not, this is the kind of thing we're going to do. But this one felt 
like there was a bit more substance to it, you know, with people signing things and statements being made and the clubs actually announcing it themselves on their own social media accounts. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I even hear the word Super League, I just get a feeling of dread. Yeah, I I think I agree with what you sort of touched on there. I think when the reports first emerged on Sunday, I kind of assumed it would be another sort of one of these soft power plays that we keep seeing from these sort of elite clubs in Europe that are pushing for Champions League reform and they want it sooner rather than later That so it gives them more power in the game both domestically and in Europe but yeah when when the sort of documents I guess and then the statement comes out and you kind of realise that actually everything's been signed you see Florentino Perez on TV talking absolute nonsense it, it does bring it home I still feel like there's maybe an aspect of power play to it. And I feel like there may be a a falling down at some point. But even if that does occur, football fans of their own clubs and of other clubs in this country shouldn't forget what these teams have signed up for, believing that they are better than everyone else, believing that they can just have a divine right to be in there. It's, It's just, we all knew that, Fans were bottom of the food chain in football. That's how football has developed and the money pit that it's become. But I don't think there's ever been sort of a move in recent history that says it quite as much as as this one, that fans are sort of the last thought for these executives, these owners. Um, I feel very sorry for fans of clubs that have signed up for it as much as anyone else as well. You know, Leeds fans and Liverpool fans coming together last night was fantastic to see. I think we're going to see a lot of that over the next few weeks um, unless there's a quick retraction but yeah I think it's just it's another another notch on the belt of of falling out of love with a game that we all have fallen in love with at such a young age it's, it's just it's soul destroying at times to read what football has become and it's just infuriating and I think Patrick Bamford spoke really well last night Marcelo Bielsa as always spoke really well Jurgen Klopp left a little bit to be desired, but I think other clubs have have also come out as well. You know, Pep Guardiola today, plenty of people have come out already and said far more eloquently than I could. But it's just it's so infuriating that these clubs just think they have a divine right to to earn more money and they've taken they've seen an advantage with fans not being in the stand because of the COVID impact and they've just taken it with both arms and it just makes you a bit sick. <laughs> It's not on merit either. It's not certainly not on sporting merit, you know, for some of these clubs. I mean, Liverpool, um, you know, mid-table clubs like Liverpool and Tottenham should should not really be uh, shooting their minds off about being European giants currently. Well, Arsenal. Um, Arsenal, Arsenal, yeah, yeah. But but what they what they what they what they want to avoid is a scenario in which Leicester and West Ham can break into the top four and Leeds can take points off them and make them look a bit silly. What they want is more money in order to dominate the game domestically, in order to earn more money so that they can dominate at European level, so they can earn more money, so they can have a dynasty at domestic level, so that they can have a big enough squad that if the manager feels his players are a bit tired from their midweek trip to Barcelona ahead of the next midweek's trip to Real Madrid, whoever, they can send out an equally good B-team squad 
to play at Burnley on Saturday and still win the game handsomely without using any of their first team. Um, it, it's a cash grab and a power grab and an attempt to turn themselves into unassailable franchises that can never be toppled or beaten. The clubs who, who are invited into this league on, on whatever merit that will be are going to be the ones that will be the whipping boys and will likely finish third um, from bottom, second from bottom and bottom. Um, it's just a non-starter, but the galling thing is that the only people they seem to have talked to are each other, you know, f- their fellow rich guy. Instead of saying, do you think we might, do you think we might, might ask, I don't know, a manager or a player about this? I feel like that's that's part of the attitude, isn't it? Like, we don't talk to those peasants. We can do what we want with our football clubs. No one else can stop us. It's that attitude, isn't it? It's it's the goal of, of Perez at Real Madrid to say it, it's the it's for the greater good of football. How can you not laugh when you're saying that out loud? How in any aspect, in any way, is a European Super League for the greater good of football? There's already a problem in this country, in England, of the disparity between the National League and the Premier League. How does creating an even more lucrative situation in Europe for these teams honestly it's just so infuriating you've got people so out of touch and that and that is why it's happened because they are so out of touch they think they're so powerful already that they can just do this um teams like Juventus who basically can't get to the semi-finals of the Champions League yearly are now taking the bat and ball home because they're getting beat by the likes of Porto and Ajax over two legs. Well, I'm sorry, that's that's a football, that's your, that's your problem. That's not everyone else's problem. Sort your team out, play well, and then you'll win the Champions League. Don't just take your bat and ball home and go, well, in that case, you know, we're not going to play Porto and Ajax because they can beat us. It's just, it's so frustrating. It's annoying. Like I say, it's just... It... It, it, it's so it's so it, make, it makes me so angry. It makes everyone else so angry, and we've seen the protests. And I think that it'll just continue until it comes to a head, um, and and we'll see what I guess happens in the fallout because it's this is going to go on for a, I think a few more days, if not weeks. I think a large a large part of the problem is that there's no accountability for these owners. Um, there's there's nobody around them saying, "Oh, hang on, this is a stupid idea." They're just surrounded by yes men. Um, but the fans are not saying yes. And last night they turned up to say no at Elland Road. There was a plane uh, funded by the uh, Leeds United Supporters Trust that carried a banner over the ground. Um, there was a large group of people who kind of ran around the side of the ground to shout at the Liverpool team as they got off the bus. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that shortly and, and Jurgen Klopp's response to that. Um because it is slightly misdirected because Jurgen Klopp, as he said afterwards, and his players have had nothing to do with this decision. Um, but fans were absolutely saying no. Leeds United said no in, in, not, in not such a subtle way, either with the banner that read, earn it on the pitch, uh, football is for the fans. Uh, they wore T-shirts as well. And I'm led to believe uh, a member of staff took a box of the T-shirts and offered it to the Liverpool kit man, um, for Liverpool to wear if they so wanted. Now, you can see that as a bit of... Um, uh, 
shithousing is the only word for it, really. You can see it as that. I felt, I, could, I, I felt like your brain was like wearing to not use that word then. And then you were just God. like, oh, I'm just going to have to use that word. But there is, there's no other word in the English language. Uh, I, I, some other languages might have a, have a better word, but that's the one we have. Um, you might see it as that, or you might see it as an opportunity for Liverpool players as one to say, you know what, you know, we feel the same. Because the message that Leeds United were putting out on that T-shirt was not particularly controversial. I mean, who, who would really stand up and say, oh, hang on a minute, no, you shouldn't have to earn it on the pitch and football is not for the fans. Nobody in their right mind would disagree with that statement because it's inherently true. So, well, there one, is twelve. There are twelve club owners that do disagree with that statement. <laughs> let's be honest, but they're not in their right minds. Um, <laughs> Very true. So, so for me, there was minimal risk in Liverpool wearing those t-shirts last night. It would have, yes, it would have been a big story, but it should be a big story, and they should be standing up against this. And they're not going to get fired. Let's be honest. But our Liverpool, Liverpool Football Club going to fire or even fine? every single player for wearing a t-shirt that says football is for the fans. It would be the biggest PR goal since the European Super League. And <laughs> I, I just think, I think there was an opportunity there and, and fair enough, they declined it. Jurgen Klopp took it a bit thick, that gesture. He took it a bit the wrong way because I think he felt it was a dig at them, but he was already angry. Um, Leeds fans had yelled at them when they were out on their walk during the day they'd shouted at them and then Leeds fans had turned up to shout at the bus and he didn't like that because he feels like him and the players are being targeted incorrectly and of course banners are being taken down at Anfield supporters want their banners back he feels those banners are there to support the team and the club is more than just the owners the club is bigger than everyone he said he was a very angry man last night but but I think he and I've written about this for tomorrow's YEP I think he had good reason to be angry I think the Leeds fans are absolutely right to be angry. And I think that the anger was probably slightly misdirected when it was aimed at Klopp and Liverpool. But they're the, they were the nearest and closest symbol of this decision taken by Liverpool Football Club. Um, not taken by them, but taken by the club. Um, because there is no opportunity to shout at these people taking the decisions. They are never going to be in a place where Leeds fans can remonstrate with them or get their point across to them. The only other thing you can do is tweet and they're not going to see that. Um, so everyone was angry and couldn't really aim their anger in, in the right direction. I think the T-shirts were a great idea. I think the banner was a great idea and I'm really pleased that Leeds took that stand. Um, it was just a, a really quite intense night at Elland Road. Um, what I will say, though, is that it was really nice seeing people wearing lead shirts wandering over from the peacock in the direction of Billy Bremner's statue. Like it, it was just a, a really nice sight that we haven't seen for so long. You know, it was almost, almost a little bit like a match day. Um, but obviously the numbers were, were far greater, greatly reduced. Um, but I have to and, say... Uh, and, and there was elements of football shirts on fire, but we'll, we'll sweep past that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm not against symbolism like that, you know, burning of season tickets and things. I think those things, that kind of things can be quite dramatic as long as they're done safely. I mean, don't get yourself into difficulty with, with don't play with matches. Um, <laughs> the man, the man of the match award for me, before we talk about the football was the saxophonist who struck up outside the chip shop uh, across from Elland Road and played money, money, money for around 95 minutes. Um <laughs> He had the long par of Stuart Dallas or Matthias Click, 
and he just he was relentless. He or, or she were relentless. I mean, that was the if I, if somebody's going to do a long read on that night, then I want them to track down the saxophonist and I want to hear their story um, because it was uh, it was some performance, um, and and just like that, Leeds United didn't give up either. Um, bit of a flat first half, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think the first half sort of summed up everyone's feeling towards the game after all the protests and everything that had sort of gone before, if, if that makes sense. I think there was a bit of a resignation of, well, if this is happening, then what's the point of it all? You know, the, what Jurgen Klopp spent a lot of midweek trying to G up his own players in the press to say, we need to finish the season as strong as possible to qualify for the Champions League. And then a day before the game, you've got, you've got a, an announcement that they're going to go and do a European Super League. So the Champions League doesn't matter anyway. So there was a bit of a bit of that. And obviously, I felt Leeds were a bit slow to start. There was a lot of sort of mistakes in midfield, giving the ball away. I thought Liverpool pressed quite well, actually. But And then obviously the, the goal goes in. But I thought they were really good in the second half, Leeds. I think they came out stop Liverpool doing a lot of what they wanted to do. Liverpool were sort of playing on the break at times, which was, you know, if you just said that a year ago, you'd have probably been laughing, wouldn't you? The way, the way that Liverpool swept aside the Premier League, the the way that they, you know, even with the season before that, stormed across Europe and won the Champions League. So I think to get a point was um, was fantastic. And I think you mentioned it a little bit before, but they, they could well have got all three you know Bamford hits the post Roberts bless him cannot buy a goal at the moment can he he really should have scored again last night and I felt when Bamford hit the bar I thought that that was the one but obviously Lorente's header good for him as well I think to, to get off the, the uh, get on the score sheet and obviously dedicated to his, to his grandpa but I was particularly pleased because Andy Hinchcliffe seemed to at every single opportunity point out something he'd done wrong at every single Liverpool attack. So that was, it was quite pleasing to see him score the goal. I don't know why that was. Maybe it was just me. But um, every single time Liverpool came forward, there was some like minor criticism of Diego Loriente, whether he'd dropped back because Salah had broken the offside trap. Like, well, what else is he supposed to do? He needs to sprint back towards his goal. But anyway, it was nice for him to score, fully deserved and... Like you said a bit before, four points from from Manchester City and Liverpool, um, fantastic. Yeah, um, Marcel Bielsa called it a beautiful game. The last time he said that was after the game at Barnsley at Oakwell last season, because um, I've been waiting for him to say it since after some games that I thought were absolutely stunning, and he hasn't. Um, I even tried to tempt him into saying it once, and he wouldn't. Uh, he reserves it for games where he feels it was actually beautiful, and he felt last night's was. Um, he also spoke at length about the ESL afterwards, says it felt inevitable, it shouldn't surprise anyone. He was basically saying this is how you know the world capitalism works, except he didn't use the word capitalism. He said this is how business works, and when people view football only as a business, then we shouldn't be surprised when they take these kinds of decisions. But any decision that harms the, the people that matter the only people that really matter, in, in his uh, opinion, the supporters, is staking the future. Um, and of course, it's harmful for football. Um, he can always be relied on to say the right thing at the right time, um, almost always. 
Um, Jurgen Klopp, as you alluded to earlier, he, I don't know if he fully grasped the opportunity to say what I think he was feeling, but also you have to remember that unlike the players who can be seen as a collective and would have to be punished as a collective, he is one man out in front of the media. And I think the point that I would make is that he he was the mouthpiece for Liverpool FC, speaking on behalf of a club who've taken a decision without informing him that they were going to take it, without consulting him on the decision. It's a decision he had no part in, and yet he was the one facing the music because these owners will not ever really face the music. You know, they put out statements on their club website um, written by someone else, but they don't answer questions. They don't face the fans. They don't face the, the media and they're not in the firing line. So instead, Klopp has to take the bullets and drink the poison. Um, and I don't think he enjoyed it very much post-game. He did talk a lot about the Leeds fans and he talked about Martin Samuel at the Daily Mail. He also said he didn't want to give the Daily Mail more headlines. I think he really just wanted to get out of there, you know, whilst also fulfilling his, his press duties. Um, but it is going to take somebody, you know, at these clubs to, to make a stand and... Just in the last few minutes or so, it's come out that Jordan Henderson has called an emergency meeting of the captains um, to try and figure out some kind of response or what they're going to do. Um, that'll be very interesting and quite fitting, I think, that it's Henderson that shows really good leadership. Um, it just really needs everyone in football to, to band together against this, including people associated with the clubs. Um, but, but, I mean, the funny thing is that with the backlash being as strong as it is already from supporters and authorities, and even Boris Johnson's chimed in, um, big football fan, Boris Johnson. Um, and I think uh, I think Keir Starmer was having a, a Zoom call as well um, this afternoon. Both of them, big, big, big ultras, you would call them. Um, the backlash has been so strong and so widespread that I think it has panicked some of those involved. And we've started to see little splits appear in, briefings to the media that uh, oh this isn't quite what we signed up for um what what did you think what did you really think people were going to say about this um so maybe maybe i'm starting to be a little bit optimistic and think that maybe by the weekend we're going to this kicked into touch um i still think it's going to come at a cost that there will be some kind of concession to these bigger clubs to give them a bit more power a bit more say or a bit more cash um that they really don't need. But I don't know if I can see this European Super League happening, Joe. I agree. Um, I think, like you say, I think there'll be some form of... I mean, UEFA have already sort of dangled that olive branch out, haven't they, to try and get them back to a table where they're at least discussing. And it, it does feel like there's potentially a compromise to be had, whether it will be one that everyone is happy with, but, you know, whether it's the bringing in more Champions League reform as of like straight away you know, for next season or whatever else. It just, it's just so frustrating the situation that we, we find ourselves in. Um, you mentioned it there. I think I understand what you're saying about Klopp. He, he had a, he had the perfect opportunity to sort of come out. He obviously said he hadn't changed opinion, but I just felt like he focused a little bit too much on, on the t-shirts and the, and the fan aspect. Um, that's been understanding of why they're, Anger, angry, and why his own fans are angry, because he was asked about, you know, Liverpool fans removing the flags and things like that, and it's just, it's just the the vacuum 
that these owners leave and then have basically thrown players and, and head coaches to the wolves of the media, essentially, haven't they? To face questions of something they've not been um, any single part of is just another aspect of the cowardice of the decisions that they've all made. It's, it's just a stark reminder of how out of touch they are. We can sit and say it and get annoyed by it all afternoon, but the way that they've gone about it, to release a statement at, what was it, midnight on Sunday? eventually saying we've signed up for this and then two of the six clubs in this country didn't bother posting it on their social media pages out of pure embarrassment or worry about the negative feedback and then was it Liverpool not posting until sort of a couple of hours before kickoff on their own Twitter pages looking ahead to the game just it's just a massive PR disaster no one in football other than those idiots at the top think it's a good idea so there needs to be some compromise Otherwise, there's going to be some serious backlash. I think we're going to see the serious backlash. I think yeah, I think last night was probably only the start in terms of the protests. The longer this rumbles on, the more this is going to mobilise people because they've probably found something that everyone in football can unite behind, which is very rare given how tribal the whole sport is. Yeah, I half expected all the um, football player profile picture um, bots to be in force. They're not actual bots, they're actual people, um, mostly kids, but alarmingly probably some grown adults as well, who just reply to their their clubs and other clubs with the same nonsensical rubbish all the time on Twitter. I thought there'd be a, a great big swathe of those coming out and backing it, but I'm not even sure that they have. Um, the Football Supporters Association say there must be no more appeasement of these vultures, uh, which is a great line. Um I think you're right. I think everyone is, everyone, 99% of football is united against this. And that's why I think it would be difficult for this to get off the ground. I don't think that the threats of expulsions will necessarily be the thing that brings this down around their ankles because the last time Man City got themselves into bother, they assembled a, a massive legal team and and, uh, and the punishment was rowed back, wasn't it? Um, I'm not sure UEFA and FIFA could necessarily make those threats stick, particularly when you're talking about this number of clubs with that much money, um, with the kind of legal teams they could put together. But I think if the rest of football is united against it, you know, if the other Premier League clubs set out vows or promises to not do any transfer business, and, and maybe the EFL clubs could join in as well, to not do any transfer business with these these 12 um there's, and if and if fans vow to boycott not only in stadiums when when allowed but on TV, um, and and that's a really difficult thing because you know I saw tweets from Liverpool fans last night saying, "Here I am, still sat with a beer watching the game." I suppose this is this is what makes them right or what makes them win in the end. Um, if it comes to, it, I think people have to very seriously consider not just not watching, not following. And the press and the media as well have a responsibility. You know, it's great. That's writing all these um, opinion pieces condemning it. But if it did happen, you know, would journalists file dutifully into the press benches and and report from um, these stadiums with these teams playing in this competition? Would it just be accepted as the new the new Champions League, the new Premier League, and we're just going along with the latest thing? Um, 
I hope it doesn't come to that. At this stage, I don't think it will. I think I just think the backlash has been so furious that somebody's going to panic and bail out and say, "Well, actually, we were just exploring the idea. You know, we weren't we weren't really going to do it. Uh, it wasn't us, Gov." Uh, and then I think the whole thing falls apart once one or two once one or two bail out. Um, so the people just have to keep the pressure on, really, don't they? I'm looking forward to an excuse that is better than Jolie and Lescott saying that he tweeted a picture of his car from his pocket. You know, something like that. Something of that proportions is absolutely coming in the next few weeks, and I cannot wait to find out what it is. Oh, no, 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 that's... Sorry, sorry. We thought it was a party that we were coming to. We thought we thought it was, was dinner. Um, yeah, the, the, there should be something terrific, but the spin will be phenomenal from these clubs. I'll tell you who I'd not like to be right now a member of the media team at any of these clubs, firstly with access to the Twitter account and Facebook so you can see all the replies and the the comments they're getting. But but secondly, to have to try and spin your way out of this, you know, with positive statements or to even post the statements on club websites. Um, because even those, those people must be thinking, what on earth are we doing here? You think of all the great staff members that work at football clubs that are kind of, no, they're not tarnished because it's nothing to do with them, but but you know what I mean. They're like their their club is being dragged through the mud, and it's through no fault of their own. Yeah, I think all six clubs obviously have had reputational damage over the last few days, but I feel like specifically Liverpool, this is an absolute PR disaster for what they've sort of built the foundations of that football club. What that is built on. It's just an absolute own goal from their owners and it shows how out of touch they are with their own fan base in particular. I think it's just a, it's just it's just an absolute nightmare for any Liverpool fan looking at this whole situation. And I think like you say, it's it's just so infuriating to see fans again thrown to the bottom of the pile, no disregard for it. Who even knows how this European Super League would have played out? Would the games, hopefully it never gets that far, but would the games be played at the home grounds? Would they be moved to, you know, an overnight stop to New York? That kind of thing. You know, you don't know how far it would eventually go in the future. You don't know where it would be. Qatar. Could Man City fans, Chelsea, Arsenal, Man U fans aren't going to want to watch their team playing another Super Six club in Europe, um, somewhere in you know, or in Dubai, or in New York, or San Francisco, we already do that enough in pre-season. If it was a pre-season tournament, fine, go off and do it, do what you want. But it's just, it's just infuriating. The whole thing is just get get. I think, like everyone else, the more you read about it, the more you get angry about it on on the basis that you know, you see. Perez on TV saying for it's the greater good football. It is no way in any shape. That is how he's making himself sleep at night. Absolutely fine. But that's not a reason. It's not how it's going to play out. Load of rubbish, load of tosh. Go home. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, put it in the bin. Uh, instead, what we should be talking about, what we should have been talking about for 45 minutes, Joe, was the 50-50 between James Milner and Calvin Phillips that <laughs> resulted in, in them both having a, a cheeky grin. Um, it was like the most Leeds footballing moment, I think, having those two Leeds-born 
rocks. I mean, they're both they're both built out of different stuff, aren't they? I mean, Milner's Milner's even got a jaw of of like a superhero, um, and and Calvin Phillips, I think, I'm not quite sure. He's 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 built out of flesh and bones. Um, he's the kind of player who gets a really serious injury and then and doesn't play for the 23s, but comes back and plays 90 minutes the next week um, and tries to play through everything. It was great seeing those two up against each other. And uh, and that's, you know, it's just great that uh, Calvin Phillips, who's grown up like Milner did, come through the, the system at Leeds and was part of a Leeds that were in the, the championship, is now getting to come up against the big boys like Liverpool and, and rough them up a little bit. Yeah, I think when Challenge went in, it was almost like one of those moments where it was, you know, like in a movie when like there's like a freeze frame and something magical somewhere between like Wortley and Horsforth happens, you know, like a baby's magically born, you know, that kind of thing. That's it. <laughs> the, most, the most lead child to ever lead child to ever be born in the history of the city. Yeah, that kind of thing. I, you know, you laugh, but that challenge and the, the magnitude of it there's definitely an, an effect like a butterfly effect and I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was some kind of immaculate conception in Beeston um, and <laughs> and in 22 years time that youngster will be scoring goals for Leeds in uh, the European Super League <laughs> um, Calvin Milner is what we'll call him Calvin 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 Milner there was a uh, there was somebody who'd named their child after Calvin um because they brought the child to a Q&A right back at the start of last season and had like pictures with the child. I think Calvin might have autographed the child. Um, the forehead. But, uh, but I know that Milner is kind of universally adored by Leeds fans. Do you think that, that Calvin Phillips is already in the kind of realms of club legend? Do you think he's maybe got a few years to go? I mean, I think he's probably going to go down as a, as a club legend by the time he's finished, so long as he doesn't leave this summer. Um, but do you think he's already there or do you think he's got a bit to go? I think he probably is already there, given the what he did in helping the club get out of the Championship after 16 years. I think I think he's probably already there. I mean, the only way that he's... I think the only thing he can do now is sort of cement it further, if you see what I mean. Like, if he goes on to... You know, the Gary Kelly proportions of 500 appearances and one club career, sort of, of the modern day. No one's ever going to get back to beating the club record of, of like, John Charles and, and Billy Bremner and 700 appearances just because the the competitions now, you know, the amount of games they used to play. But I think the way that he'll, if, if he, you know, ends up being a one-club man and goes on and plays for England consistently, I think it's, I think everything from here on in is sort of just cementing that, that legacy because I think, I feel like he's already sort of got a lot of that under his belt. The way that he, you know, he, he could have left, he could have left, you know, I think everyone knows that. Everyone talks about it. He was on Football Focus last weekend talking about, you know, how Granny Val told him he, could, he couldn't leave, you know, and things like that. And I think um, it would have been heartbreaking to see him leave for a lot of Leeds fans. But I think the way that he stayed, you know, he gave it one more year, has transformed under Marcelo from being sort of a, an attacking midfielder to start with. And then it's just been, yeah, I think everything from here will be hopefully, fingers crossed, cement that further. Um, Manchester United next up. 
uh, at the end of this triumvirate of, of terrific games. Uh, one would hope that Rafinha would be back in the picture by then. Marcelo Bielsa says he's being evaluated day to day and kind of in American sport parlance, day to day means a player is almost back, doesn't it? So um, hopefully that's what Bielsa is alluding to and hopefully uh, Rafinha will be back in the starting lineup. Um, Helder Costa, jury's out on Helder Costa in the Premier League, I think still. Um, we have seen some good stuff from him. We've seen a bit of aggression and um, like he's like he wants to really fight for the shirt, and you'd hope to see that after Rafinha came in and kind of nailed down that place on the right wing. Ian Paveda, he's not really had much of an opportunity of late, so it was good to see him come back in last night. Um, he is he's a fun player to watch when he has the ball at his feet, you know, just really, really quick, really direct. And of course, he should have picked up an assist because Tyler Roberts should have finished off that chance that. Provider provided. Um, Jack Harrison has had his ups and downs of late, but I think by and large it's a very, very good season um, and has come up with a few assists recently. Um, so Leeds have options when it comes to the wing, um, but I think the ideal scenario is that Rafinha comes back and, um, and gives Manchester United a horrible time of it. Yeah, I'm just hoping that Maybe he was touch and go and they didn't want to risk him for, for Liverpool. That, that's got to be the best case scenario. Just going back to what you mentioned there, it's such a shame that the football hasn't adopted the American way of having injury lists published every morning, isn't it? Because that would be an absolute dream, you know, seeing who's on injured reserve, for example, or what their injury is or when they're expected back. Can you imagine the the insight we'd get there? But anyway, yeah, fingers crossed he can, he can make it back. It would be fantastic to see him running at uh, Harry Maguire, that's for sure. Yeah, there, there would be daily heart attacks, um, people saying somebody's name on the injured list. I mean, the, the heart rates would be soaring as people click the link, wouldn't they? Um, do, what do you mean he's be... got a lower leg injury? <laughs> but then I'm thinking about the amount of like times that we would fall for like a Photoshop of like an injured reserve list. You're like, Bamford, broken leg. You're like, oh my God. And then like that'd be 30 seconds of heart attack and then you'd realise that someone's just having you on. Yeah, maybe that's not such a good idea. Maybe we should just rely on Marcelo to update us every few days. Yeah, I'll settle for that. Um, Rodrigo, I feel like Rodrigo's season hasn't really got going. You know, I feel like it's been, it's probably been frustrating for him more than anyone, but just when he seems to get back in the team and seems to be getting fit again, he gets another knock or another niggle. Um, it's not doing his European Championship hopes a lot of good at the minute. Um, so hopefully he'll be back in the side soon and, and can finish the season well. Um, I turned to one of my colleagues last night when when it wasn't really happening for Bamford, which was just before he hit the bar. Um, I said, uh, you know, you could just stick on Gelhard. Um, I'm really keen to see him in first team action, just because like everyone else, he's kind of, he represents, we've said it before, he represents potential. He represents the unknown, like, you know, could he do it at first team level? It, it's very harsh to put that kind of expectation on someone so young and so inexperienced. Um, but he must be close because he's on, he's, he's on the bench and he wouldn't be on the bench if Bielsa didn't feel he could come on and play if needed. Um, I'd really like to see it soon. I was thinking about the aspect of potentially 
I, I was trying to think if there's any, you know, with this five sub rule, if there's any potential of getting Sam Greenwood to like be subbed on just to take a free kick and then immediately sub him off again if was required because the amount of free kicks that he's scored this season is absolutely nuts. You know, like, I know obviously the concussion rule is 100% a very serious thing, but for the purposes of this joke, like to get someone to fall over pretending they've hit their head, put him on, he'll score a free kick, take him off again. Sorted, aren't you? Like his free kick again at Aston Villa, I think that was his fourth of the season already you know he's, he's scored nine in the league and he's got an extra one at in a friendly at York but just similar to to Joffe I think lots of, of potential there and lots of excitement about the the unknown about what they could potentially bring it would be nice to see a couple of them play a few minutes in this in this game run because of the luxury that Leeds have over the next few weeks but as we probably know it's probably not the Marcelo Bielsa way you know everything's done on sort of merit so it'll be interesting to see um, but Joffy's obviously a lot closer to the first team now than he was a few months ago he's sort of regularly named in the squad now I think it took him until about February wasn't it for the first time to be named in there so exciting times for the whole football club really ahead it feels like anyway and, and a summer to come that everyone can can relax I think we talked about this little run of games um, a while back, but I think in August, when or whenever it was, July, when the, the results came, I think everyone looked at like the April run and went, that could be a bit of a problem if there's any slight doubt about the, the status. But the fact that they got themselves essentially into this run with no worries is is a real tip of the hat to, to Bielsa and everyone. Yeah, and, and now they are safe, so... Um whilst they won't be able to go out and relax and enjoy, they'll have to play with the same intensity as ever, if, if not more so. Um, everyone else will be able to relax a little bit and enjoy these games. Um, starting with Man United, what's your prediction? I wasn't expecting to give a prediction, so now I'm on the spot. Um, God, it would be good to get one over him, wouldn't it? Especially after that shambolic start in December that was just like, all nightmares realised after four minutes of Scott Mc... Like, how did Leeds allow Scott McTonney to score twice? Um, anyway, I'll go 2-1 Patrick Bamford brace and he'll reveal a shirt that says earn it, all that stuff. All that shit housing. Yeah, that would be tremendous, wouldn't it? Um, I'm going to say 1-1. One, one. I think uh, I think they'll draw the game like they did with Liverpool, uh, which would be a pretty glorious return from these three games, um, and will really set them up for an assault on Champions League places. Uh, once you discount the teams that will be expelled by the weekend, um, thanks very much for joining us on episode ninety nine of the Inside Ellen Road podcast. We'll be back with episode 100 in 2023. And in the meantime, we'll have all the fallout from the game against Liverpool and all of the latest on the ESL on uh, the Yorkshire Evening Post website. Ta-ta!